Let's take our seats. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, good morning. So good to see you here today. Troy, I'm waiting for that thumbs up. There it is, okay. It's all thing. So good to be together once again. Appreciate the music. Excellent to get us encouraged to thinking about this wonderful uh, topic that we have today, Psalm 133. I always want to thank the leaders for the opportunity to preach the word. Very thankful for that. Also want to thank all of you as a church body for uh, your continual love and support of me and your prayers. I appreciate that so very much. And uh, that means much to, to my wife and to me, very much so. Someone, a uh, couple things I, I, I came to mind, you know, when, when I was asked to preach uh, on this passage, of course, I said, yes, I'm happy to do it. And uh, I said to myself, I, I, I preached on this passage before. You know, when we preachers, we have files, right? So I went back in the file, and uh, I knew I was in trouble when I didn't have the file in my computer. I thought, hmm. But I know I've, pre I've preached on this passage before. So then you go to the old, uh, you know, the hard copies in the, in the files. And lo and behold, there was a message that I had preached uh, for the first time in 1988. <laughs> I thought, boy, are you old. <laughs> you are old. But then I looked at the message, looked at my notes, and I thought, Oh, wow, that poor congregation, <laughs> what they listen to. At any rate, so don't worry, it's a brand new message. I, 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 it's not, I'm not preaching the old thing. But uh, so <laughs> someone had asked me uh, not too long ago, uh, they were asking me about Lyme disease and retirement and all of that sort of thing, and, and, they, and they said to me, oh, oh, did you like preaching? I said, did I like preaching? The pulpit was my happy place. <laughs> we preachers love the privilege to preach the word of God. And it's good to know that God uses men of all stripes and all abilities. And so I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity today to share the word, especially with this loving church family, for which I'm grateful. Well, it's only three verses. Ryan already read it, but I want to read it one more time. Uh, and if you're using a, one of the Bibles in the back of your chairs, it's page 519. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Well, just three verses long, even though it's just three verses long. Psalm 133 is packed with wonderful truths for us that I believe are critical to the corporate health of us as, as a body of believers, but also uh, to us as individuals. This psalm does describe in a very uh, beautiful way the experience of God's people dwelling in unity. And there's a very significant promise at the end of this, and we want to especially focus on that as we get to that verse. However, from the very outset of this uh, sermon today, and the study today, I think it's important uh, to say that it's not really maybe an overstatement, that a lack of unity among believers maybe sometimes is not considered as such a big deal as it really is. 
Um, you know, sometimes when God's people don't get along, we, we kind of say, well, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not like someone committing murder or, or, or adultery or whatever. But yet the truth of the matter is uh, that it is very important. And we should take this topic very seriously. Examining it this morning mostly from uh, the positive view of unity's blessing as laid out in our text because that's what it is, the blessing of unity. But also we want to be warned of the dangers of disharmony among brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll do that by way of application especially. Now, of course, most agree that this psalm was written by David, and the notes in your Bible probably indicate that as so. Um, we don't know the exact occasion for when he wrote this, but it's very interesting to think about this when you think about the life of David. Uh, it's, a it's an interesting contemplation because um, he certainly didn't always see unity in his life. It's uh, a song of degrees or a song of ascents, and our, our brother Brian, the last two weeks especially, gave us teaching and what that means is the Jews, their pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem to worship, so I'm not going to repeat teaching on that. But interestingly, and I suppose maybe even ironically, an examination of the life of David reveals to us uh, that he knew much about a lack of unity in his relationship with God's people. Uh, whether it was when uh, he was ascending to the throne uh, particularly in regard to King Saul and, and the, the divisions that occurred between those who followed David and those who followed Saul. Or maybe you can think of the end of David's life when his very own son rebelled against him. And again, a division occurred uh, in, in his reign. Uh, many believe that the occasion of this writing, however, was uh, the end of the civil war that existed between the house of David and the house of Saul. But we don't know that for sure. But at any event, let's dive in and examine these three verses a little bit more deeply to get a better understanding about them and then make some application to our lives. First of all, we see very clearly in the very first verse an exclamation. I like to call it that. This psalm begins with a powerful exclamation of the joy that results when believers are, are uh, together in unity. Now, again, for all of my grammar lovers, and I hope that we have a lot of them in here, uh, I always like to ask, how many of you don't like grammar but love grammar? One, two, three, four, five. That was more than the last time I asked, so we're getting there. We're, 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 we're getting there. Notice that what's the end point of this sentence? It's an exclamation point, right? And, of course, it occurs in verses 2 and 3 as well, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. With great emotion, David is extolling the marvelous blessing of God's people dwelling together in unity. Or, as could be more literally translated, dwelling together. And that's a, 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 a description here of how good and how pleasant it is. Uh, or more literally, how delightful or sweet or lovely it is. So what a wonderful experience is being described by David. And who among us would not want that to be our experience, right? Working together as brothers and sisters in Christ here in the house of God or working in the church of God for the, the purpose of worshiping Jesus Christ and telling the world of who he is and uh, seeing others come to know him. But doing that in such a way that, as David describes it here with the Israelites, in a delightful, sweet, and loving way. Now, 
to get a little, get us thinking a little further about this and take a moment for some further theological underpinnings. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about what the first place we have recorded in Scripture is where there is perfect unity on the earth? Where, where would that be? The Garden of Eden, right? The end of Genesis chapter 2. So we have Adam and Eve and God in unity as it was the way it was supposed to be, in fellowship one with another. Before sin entered into the world, there was no such thing as division or lack of unity in God's created beings, and in particular, Adam and Eve, right? Now, I understand what I'm going to mention, too, also, as Belvis all intellectually, just because we can't comprehend it, but consider this as well. Remember, we worship a triune God, right? One God in three persons, in perfect unity. So God, as to his nature of, of holiness and righteousness, he himself is a perfect unity. One God, three persons. So if we are careful to examine the topic of unity and very wisely take it all back to our creator and his creation and the beautiful and marvelous and holy and righteous unity of our triune God, we're beginning to see in the revelation of God and as to his character, the genuine importance of unity. And not to get too far ahead of myself, as described, uh, uh, who, who would you say, rather, is described in Genesis chapter 3 as the instigator of division, right? The evil one, right? The devil himself. He comes along, and what does he do? He causes division between God and man. Did God really say that you don't have to eat of that fruit? I mean, did he really say that? Casting doubt. He's the one who brings the division. And the rest of Scripture, of course, as we know, is a sad record of the result of that division or that separation or that lack of unity between God and man and between man and man. And let us not forget that the devil is still very much at work, is he not? Sadly, is the truth. Now, to give you something more positive to think about, however... In spite of that, and we'll get to this in more detail in a little while, in spite of what sin has done, we do have a record in the scripture of God's people being able to get together in unity or to be working together in unity. In spite of the sinful nature that we battle, in spite of the devil working. And, you know, if we look at the book of Acts, which is really uh, an extension of the, of the gospel of Luke, right? Luke wrote the gospel, that gospel, and then he wrote the book of Acts for us to give us a continuation of what was going on in the church and how it started. In chapter 1 of Acts, in the very beginning, it says, all these with one accord, there's that phrase, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so in Acts chapter 1, we have, a, a, in the very beginning, a record of God's people being able to be unified. And then, of course, we were looking at parts of Acts chapter 2 already in our reading, but uh, we have the coming of the Spirit of God uh, onto uh, the church, God's people. That's very significant, extremely significant for fully understanding unity within God's people. But when we get to chapter 4, verse 32, we have this verse. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. 
And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. What's significant about that passage is that those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Now, in chapter 3, prior to that, what happened? We had Peter and John, a man being healed, as was already mentioned. Uh, I think, what, what was that in... In E412, or on this, I can't remember which one. E412, right? We, if you were here, Peter and John, and the healing of the man, and of course, uh, Peter and John's great defense before the council, and great power came upon them. And then that's when we have the record of this verse, chapter four. All those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So we see here the beauty and the blessing of unity among God's people. And again, I want to emphasize that God does not take it lightly when His people are divided. Now, at the risk of getting ahead of myself just a little bit, let me just say that the scriptures clearly reveal, and also if you've been on the planet for a little while and God's, one of God's people for a little while, you know that that experience of unity does not always happen, does it? Mm-mm. Sadly, it's not the case. You get two or more people together, just in general, doesn't have to be believers, right? And there's going to be sometimes disagreement. But unity among God's people just doesn't happen. We, we, are, we, are, we live in a, a sin-sick world, a broken world. We're, we have a, a sinful nature. And there are many admonitions in the Word of God that we would be united. And I'll just mention one uh, before we get into the second point of this message. That is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you know anything about what Paul was doing there, Paul was writing to the church at Corinth because there were divisions there. And in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you, be not you, uh, that you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul saw it necessary to remind the Corinthians of the importance of being unified because there was something that was greater than them individually. It was what God had called them to be, a light to the world. So we see this wonderful exclamation of the blessing of unity, but let's look secondly at uh, the comparisons, verse two and the first part of verse number three. I bet you're saying, wow, that first verse was short. This is gonna be a short message. Don't worry, I only have 25 pages of notes in here, so we're, we're good. Uh, Now, to continue in the wonderful way that David describes the blessing of unity among God's people, he uses two beautiful similes in verse number two and the first part of verse number three. So those of you who are gaining a love for grammar, you say, what is a simile? I'm so glad you asked, all right? So a simile is simply a, a comparison that is introduced with the word like or as. For example, in this very hot weather that we've been, by the way, it's going to get really hot tomorrow, right? You know that. Tomorrow you may, like I walk into my shed after a hot day, you know, I don't have air conditioning in my shed. I don't know about you, but my shed in the backyard is not air conditioned. So when I walk into that thing after the sun's been blazing on it, I say, wow, it's hot like an oven in here, right? It's a comparison. I'm using something to have a description so that I understand something a little bit better. And David is doing that for for us here. And David describes the goodness and the pleasantness of unity among brethren like, first of all, he says, 
like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, even running down on the collar of his robes. Now this, of course, is a reference to the anointing of Aaron and his sons by Moses into the priesthood for the worship of God when they were in the wilderness. We have a record of this in Leviticus chapter 8, verse number 12. And he, that would be Moses, poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Now, a whole lot could be said about this. A ton could be said about this. But this morning, I don't want us to miss the significance of this statement. As the Israelites were being instructed by God in the wilderness of how they were to worship him, he selected Aaron and his sons to be priests, those who were going to be set apart for the purpose of performing the duties that were necessary to approach a holy God. Aaron is the one who is being sanctified here or made ceremonially clean with the pouring on of this oil in order that he might approach God to sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. Let me just insert this here because I, I like, what is the, one of the expressions used to describe David in the Bible? He's a man after God's own heart. Why is that? David here is talking about the unity of believers. And what does he bring into this? He brings into this the, the, a remembrance or a description of what happened here in this, as I mentioned, as is mentioned in, uh, in this verse 2, the pouring down of the oil, the, the anointing of Aaron. <clears throat> he describes, I believe, the wonder and awe of being able to worship a holy God. David did not take lightly the fact that he could approach God. And it was only by the mercy and the grace of God that he could do that very thing. Through Aaron's anointing and that ceremony, then he was allowed to make sacrifice for God's people through that priesthood. So don't forget the significance or miss the significance of the comparison that David is using here. Dwell, brothers dwelling together in unity, it's like the anointing of Aaron where God's people can come into the presence of God and make sacrifice to him. Now, Matthew Henry, the commentator of many years ago, has an interesting comment about this too. He says that, quote, it is fragrant as the holy anointing oil which was strongly perfumed and diffused its odors to the great delight of all the bystanders when it was poured upon the head of Aaron. So not only did this anointing have the primary significance of allowing God's people the privilege of approaching him and of having fellowship with him, but it literally was a pleasant physical experience. Those who are around there could actually smell this anointing oil and it was a beautiful and a wonderful thing. So David is using this comparison to, com to proclaim what a wonderful experience it is when God's people are in unity. And contemplating this comparison, we can easily see how very crucial the unity of the believer is, or believers, to the corporate communion with God as well. You know, we think much of our own communion with God, and I dare say that most of us, I'll, I'll just say it, don't really know a whole lot about that or enough about that. 
what it really means to commune with God. Remember, you can know a whole lot about God but not commune with Him. You can have your head filled with theology and no Bible principles but not know Him. Not only is that for us individually, but we need to know that corporately. God was calling a nation to himself as we have here in Israel, right? And he has a new people now, the new covenant, through Jesus Christ and his wonderful sacrifice for us. And we can commune with him. But let's look at the second comparison. He says it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. In the scriptures, dew is generally agreed to be a picture of God's blessing. And David gives the name of both a higher mountain, but also some lower mountains in Israel. And some commentators will, will take pains to say that this is an allegorical demonstration or connection between God's blessing on the high and the low people, and that's fine, whatever. But for me, I just see it clearly as saying God wants to bless his people, and he does demonstrate that over and over again through the word. Some examples of this due blessing, and you can find in other places. Genesis 27, verse 28. We have this interesting passage where Isaac is pronouncing a, a blessing upon Jacob, although he thinks it's Esau. <laughs> he's being tricked or he's being fooled. But this is what Isaac says. May God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. In Exodus chapter 16, when we have the record of God providing for his people who are in the wilderness and have no way of providing food for themselves, here's what we have. Exodus 16, verse 13 and 14 says, In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. So, we know this is a record of God providing the daily manna, and it was introduced by the dew first. Deuteronomy 33, 28, Moses, at the end of his life, he's pronouncing a blessing on his people before God takes him to be with him. And this is what we have, just a small snippet of what he said. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens dropped down dew. Brothers and sisters, these are just two comparisons in Psalm 133 of the blessing of unity that God wants to bring upon his people. The scripture is filled with what I would call the, the, maybe the positive teaching, such as this psalm of, of the blessing of unity, but also the negative uh, part of it too, which would be the dangers of disunity. And so how does David then finish this short exclamation of unity? We have the exclamation where he says, oh, how good it is for people, God's people to dwell together. That's lovely and it's wonderful. And we have the comparisons. But oh, we would be lacking if we didn't see the important promise at the end of verse number three. He says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Don't miss the word commanded. God has commanded the blessing. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on this psalm, admonishes us to be careful that we don't miss God's initiative in all of this. And it has to do with what he describes as the descending blessing. 
And I think he's right about that. All of this coming down from God uh, and, and from heaven above. Look at verse number two, if you will, again. The precious oil descended upon the head and the beard of Aaron at his command. In the second part of, ver- of verse number two, the precious oil descending on the collar of his robe. And in the first part of verse number three, the dew descending both literally and figuratively as the blessing of God at his command. And so, to quote Derek Kidney, this is what he said. True unity, like all good gifts, is from above. Bestowed rather than contrived. A blessing far more than an achievement. Mm. I think it was well said. Oh, for the blessing of unity among God's people. And can we not see clearly then that unity among God's people must emanate first and foremost from above? Why do I say that? It's from the transformative work of God's spirit in the heart of someone who knows him. You see, I personally believe that we oftentimes find that churches suffer from disunity because we have people who are in the flock who are not really sheep. You say, preacher, that's pretty bold. Listen, I'm not God and I don't know anybody's heart, but I've been around the block a few times to know that there are some people who claim to be God's people who do not demonstrate much or any of God's spirit upon them, i.e. the fruit of the spirit, which we'll get to later. You see, when God does a transformative work in your heart and the spirit of God comes inside you, you're born again, there's something that you connect with other believers. My most recent example of that was with my brother Dan here. Dan and I got to talk to one another. We got to say, let's go out for coffee, go for lunch. We went out to eat. And by the second time we talked, I remember saying to him specifically, you know, Dan, we hardly even know each other. We don't have the same background. We don't come from the same place. But there's a bond. And that's the Spirit of God in him and the Spirit of God in me. And by the way, that has nothing to do with me or him. Right? It has to do with what God has brought down on us. Made us sons of God. And so when we think of this topic of unity and this, this such important topic of unity, let's remember that God wants us to see that it first and foremost comes down from him. Now, let me just mention quickly, I'm not talking about uniformity, right? Uniformity is we all have to wear the same clothes, eat the same food. It would be Italian food, uh, of course. Um, but... Uh, That's uniformity. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a oneness. And we would be remiss if we didn't very importantly get to what our Savior had to say about this. In John chapter 17, you know part of his his prayer before he is brought to the cross and to die on our behalf. In verses 20 and 21 of John chapter 17, Jesus said this, I do not ask for these only, be the disciples that are around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, okay? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Remember we talked about that unity, the triune God? 
Jesus is praying something here that you know can't happen naturally. It just doesn't happen. We are all very different from each other, aren't we? We have different appearance, we have different likes, different temperaments, different intelligence, all kinds of ways we're very, very different. God made it that way. But there is something supernatural that unites us. It's a person called the person of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is praying that that unity would be among us and there would be such a unity among us that it would be even like the unity that Jesus had with his heavenly Father. Wow, that's pretty powerful stuff to contemplate, isn't it? And you say, well, preacher, when I look way down inside myself, I see things that aren't too pretty. Yeah, so do I. I have thoughts that are not really terrific. Yeah, so do I. And sometimes I have a thought about a brother and sister. Yeah, so do I. We're getting honest here, aren't we, today? So my point is we need something outside of ourselves to really bring unity among us. Now, let's not miss the very significant end of this passage. What does he say is the reason that he wants us to have unity? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, what is our job? What is our calling? What is our privilege? To tell the world who Jesus is and what he's done, right? So when there is a lack of unity among God's people, what is not being demonstrated or what is not being spoken out? The gospel. Is it any wonder why the devil works hard to divide his people? He works very hard to do that. So the gospel goes out as, one of the ways the gospel goes out, I should say, is as we are united together and able to tell the world that Jesus has done a supernatural work in us. Yes, division is natural, but thankfully, unity is supernatural. It is attainable, and it's expected. That's what God calls us to do. So the Apostle Paul, as I already mentioned in 1 Corinthians, wants to remind the believers not to be deceived into any kind of talk or action which would bring disharmony among the brethren. So in Romans 15, in the end of that wonderful, wonderful book, wonderful treatise, doctrinal treatise, he says this in Romans 15, 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together <clears throat> you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose of the unity? What's the purpose of working together? What's the purpose of all of this? To glorify God. It's not just so that we can get along. And that's nice. And, and David says how beautiful and how wonderful it is when we are together. And isn't it wonderful when you are joining together with a brother and sister in Christ because you have a common bond? I heard a preacher just say not too long ago in a message I, 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 I uh, heard. He said he was, uh, he was with some pastors one time. And it was a, it was a conference. And they, they had preaching on a Sunday. And then Monday, the, you know, we're going to have preaching on, Sunday, on Monday night and Tuesday. And, and Monday, some of the guys, uh, preachers, were out there uh, golfing. And uh, so this guy said he wanted, well, he was out with his brother preachers, and he wanted to talk about the Lord. And guess what a couple of these preachers said? 
let's not talk shop. Uh, am I confused or is it all about Jesus Christ? Amen. You know, you should never be ever weary of talking about Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the one you love more than anything or anyone ought to be. Now, the truth of the matter is sometimes our hearts are very cold, aren't they? Or they're self-centered. Or we love the things of this world. But to the degree that we are growing in Christ, maybe we can agree in that line of the song that says that the things of this world grow strangely dim. That's God's goal. That he's working on you and working on me that the things of this world would grow strangely dim to us in the light of Jesus Christ. You see, we should want and love to talk about him. And that's the joy of, one of the joys of the unity of the believer. Philippians chapter 2. We already had a little reference to this uh, to this morning. So if there be any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, notice the participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. That's the second time that word's used in that verse. Being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Two crucial words in that verse are love and humility. Genuine love comes from humility. What, put, what allowed Christ to die for you and for me? The humility that he had, even though he was God in the flesh, perfect. He was willing to die and take that cross for you and for me. Even Peter had something to say about this in 1 Peter 3, 8. He said, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. There it is again, a tender heart and a humble mind. E every one of these verses can be taken apart, right, and really preached on. But I'm just mentioning them this morning so that we will see the importance of unity and how the apostles admonished the churches that they needed to strive toward it and to learn how to walk in the Spirit so that the, the unity would come. So, let's remember what Jesus has done for us. He reconciled us to God through faith in His atoning work on the cross. And by the way, if you're here today and you've never really made sure that you understand that, would you please talk to somebody here today? One of us, me, or one of the elders, or one of the other folks. You say, well, I don't really understand it. We'd be happy to talk to you about it. And it's not something that can be forced on you. It has to be something that you come to seek from your heart as God is working in your heart. I was sharing with someone the other day. My wife and I went to Greeley to the vintage fair. And we went to one of the booths. And it turns out this young, this, uh, young woman and her mother were there and had a booth. And it turns out they were Christians. And we started talking to them. And I was able to share my testimony again of how that day when someone just shared with me that Jesus did it all, that I didn't have to go through all these works, all these routines and all these rituals, and the light went on. Maybe you don't understand that like I didn't understand it, but maybe today might be the day you understand. We would like to talk to you about that. But those of us who are all truly born again, brothers and sisters in Christ, we rejoice in that truth. But if we walk in the Spirit, we will be in unity. But if we walk in the flesh, what will there be? A lack of unity. So I'd like to close this message this morning to 
look at just a couple of places. I haven't asked you to turn any place in your Bible this morning. We put everything else on the screen. But I'd like to turn to a couple of places in the, in the scriptures as we close. Um, if you turn to Romans chapter 12, we already have reference to it in our slides, Romans 12. <coughs> and of course, if you know something about the book of Romans, you know the first 11 chapters are wonderful teachings by the Apostle Paul on doctrine of salvation and how it relates to the nation of Israel. All of those things, it's fantastic. But as already has already been on the slide for us this morning, partly, just want to note a couple of verses. After Paul talks about all of this wonderful, all the wonderful doctrine, all that God has done for us, this is what he says again, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice. Now, you know what a sacrifice was in the Old Testament, right? It was an animal, mostly, all right? And what did they do to the animal? They killed it. Now, this, is, this seems contradictory. A living death. That's what Paul says. Brothers, I want you to present yourself a living sacrifice. Now, one of the problems that we have with a lack of unity is that there's so much still alive in me. How about you? You know, the little things like, well, wait a minute, you can't treat me that way. And I often say, well, why not? I mean, am I, am I that special? If you know your Bible, you know you're not. I mean, you're, you're, God saved you, but don't, don't misunderstand it. You know? Um, one of my favorite verses in the Corinthians is, uh, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? So as I stand here before you this morning, what can I claim that I have that I got for myself? Nothing. Every good thing I have and every what we might term negative thing I have is a gift of God. And for me personally, I've shared with you, my illness has been a gift of God. It truly has. And I praise him for it. God has his purposes, does he not? But in verse number three, if you look at Romans 12, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Isn't that one of the reasons why there's a lack of unity? Because we do think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Verse number six says, you know, we have gifts differ according to the grace of God. We're one body. Verse five, one body. I'm just skimming over these to just make some points here. Verse number nine, he says, let love be genuine. Verse 10, love one another with love, brotherly affection. Outdo one another showing honor. I don't know how it is for you, but I know for me, and turn to Ephesians chapter four as we close, Ephesians four. One of my greatest problems is getting over the love of myself. How about you? That's the deal, isn't it? Now, what overcomes that? It's not that Joe reaches down, gets himself up by the bootstraps, and says, I'm not going to be selfish anymore. Now, that might be a good thing to want, but you know what, brothers and sisters? It's just not going to happen unless you ask God's Spirit to transform you, to make that into you. 
to the degree that we are yielded and surrendered. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And these are some of the things that show us that we're walking in a manner that's worthy of our calling. With humility, verse number 2. Gentleness. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. Well, you know what that means? That means I'm going to do something that's unbearable to you a little bit. I'm going to say something or do something that you're going to say, ugh, why did he say that? Or why did he do that? What God says is he wants you to be patient with me and bearing with me. Why? Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because there is one body and one Spirit. That's everything from the whole body of Christ and we could just make the application to our body here, right? Let me ask you one thing, and I'm done. What is the first fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5? Anybody know? Love. That is the first fruit of the Spirit. You know where love comes from, right? What does the Bible say? God is love. Genuine love comes from God. I'm not talking about necessarily affection, and that's a wonderful thing. I have a very affectionate person, a very affectionate family. But that's, there's a difference between affection and love, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, and from this, everything else comes. Joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. So you and I are confronted with some questions this morning as we are reminded by David of the blessing of unity, and it is a blessing, but it doesn't happen by accident, does it? Some questions for you and for me. Do we really see the genuine blessing of unity among brethren? Do we understand its importance? Do we recognize that God wants to have unity descend upon his people just as one of his manifold blessings? If it does come from him to the work of love and humility in his people, what attitudes or actions in my life as a part of this body helps or hinders that unity. And lastly, if it is directed by the work of the Spirit, am I yielding to the fruit of the Spirit, or yielding to the Spirit of God, rather, so that the fruit of the Spirit might be evident in my life? I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a little quiet time for yourself in prayer as well. Father, thank you for the amazing privilege of preaching on this topic, which is so important. May you help us, my Father in heaven, to rejoice in the blessing of unity, to realize that you are a triune God united in yourself and you have made us in your image and you want unity among, uh, between you and us as individuals and among us as believers. And that our communion with you individually and our communion with you as a church is so connected to our unity among us. Help us to understand that to consider what you by your spirit have worked in us today. And again, Father, if there would be anyone in here who's not certain, they understand what it really means to be a child of God, that they know they have a relationship with you. May they seek you today. We ask this in Christ's name.